Have you ever sat down to write a letter, to write a sales letter, or to write an email blast, or to wireframe a website, and you have no idea what to say? Of course, you know what you want to do. You want customers to pay attention to what you're saying and want to buy your product, but you don't know what words to put on the page and what order to put them in. I've got something special for you. It's a webinar called Why Customers Buy. And once you understand why customers really buy products, I promise you, it's not the reason that you think. Once you understand why customers really buy products, you will know what to say. You will much better know what to talk about in that sales letter, in that email blast, and on that website. You can register for my webinar right now at whycustomersbuy.com. I want you to go to whycustomersbuy.com and register for this webinar. Reserve your place, watch it with a notebook and pen, and do the very simple things I teach you to do in this webinar, and you are going to see a greater response from customers. Again, go to whycustomersbuy.com and reserve your seat in this webinar. Do it now. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose, noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined by my co-host, J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. J.J., you have a mug problem. <laughs> Are you talking about my face? <laughs> no, not your face. Every good story starts with a problem. Yes. And your problem is mugs. I would not call it a problem. Let me just say, I mean, yeah. you collect mugs, uh-huh. Starbucks mugs, at yeah. every city you go to, uh-huh. which is amazing. a habit of old ladies. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, this is what your crazy aunt and uncle did. It, 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 it. Yeah, a little bit. But um, <laughs> I love, well, okay. So I know a lot of people may give flack. I'll talk about the mugs in a second, but I enjoy Starbucks because you can go into a Starbucks in any city in the world, including. And get a good cup of coffee. I'll, I'll yeah, give them that. Yeah, but you, it's even more than that for me. It's not confusing. When I go into Beijing Starbucks, I can point. <laughs> because you're in Beijing yeah, that often. <laughs> I've been, I have a Beijing Starbucks mugs. I have a Hong Kong one. I have Amsterdam. I have multiple France. I have uh, from. Topeka? Topeka. Hmm. I'm missing that one, but I will get it. They don't have them in Italy, I believe. I can't remember. Do I have one from Italy? I might. I know I have them from Britain. I have them from Chile. I have them from every country I go to. Do you hang them on like hat racks at the top of your room? No. You know what I mean? Like the cats. Mostly they're just dirty in my sink. Because, like, (laughs) since I have so many mugs, I don't have to wash them on a regular basis. So I just kind of pile them up. You've said some interesting things that have a lot to do with Story Brand and what we teach folks. (laughs) You said that you know what to get. There's not yeah. confusion nope. when you go into a Starbucks. They have systems and they have yeah. taught you like a dog to use their <laughs> yes, system and I do. when they whistle, I you place your order. Bark. <laughs> yes. And the other fun thing is because they have like a unique mug from everywhere in the world, it's just a way of being able to bring back a souvenir that represents where I've been. And so I really do. I know it might seem cheesy, but I own it. I have mugs from all over the world and I continue to buy them. Yeah. Some yep. people are bird watchers. Some people climb Everest. You collect. <laughs> I collect Starbucks. 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 I am the Everest climber. There was Starbucks a time, mm-hmm. I remember, 20 years ago, yes, when Starbucks was, and they are an incredible brand. I mean, we yeah, study yeah. this brand, and yeah. I love what Schultz has done with the company. He's, I think he's a business hero of mine. Yeah. There was a time, though, and, and these days the brand, it's not saturated, but we're familiar with it, and yeah. people tend to turn a little bit on things that they're overly familiar with. Yeah. It's not new or novel anymore. Everybody has copied them in the marketplace and just yes. put their little <laughs> switch on it. Yeah. But they're all doing what Starbucks pioneered yeah. in the market for them to do, which is to sell 4 or $5 cup of coffee. You have to do something different in order to sell a 50-cent product for $4. Yeah. And the difference with Starbucks, there's a lot, but part of it is branding. Yes. And branding, as it relates to the interview that we're about to play for you, has to do with the way you make people feel about themselves when they engage your brand. And there is extreme value in making people feel a certain way. Yes. So this episode is really about marketing versus branding. Marketing is 
when you communicate very clearly what your offer is and the people who are listening understand why they need your product to make their life better. Yes. But it's all very straightforward. Mm -hmm. This is what we do. This is what we offer. These are the prices. And if you don't get that right, forget it. You are Mm -hmm. going to die as a business. And that's what StoryBrand helps you do. They help you get that part right. There's also branding, which StoryBrand also helps you do, but branding is a little bit different. It's a little more vague. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking about an overall brand that has a lot of products, that is a national brand, even small local companies need to understand branding, but you're really talking about the look, feel, values of the organization that are demonstrated somehow effectively in the colors you use, yes. in the music you play, yep. in the way the store smells when you walk in, in the things that you say to people when you're encountering your customer. This is all brand. Branding. Yep. And we wanted to do an episode on branding, and we found, I think, one of the <laughs> world's leading experts at branding. I couldn't believe that we got him Even on the show. when you say, like, world-leading expert, that's almost like an undersell. His name is Don Schneider, and Don Schneider is responsible. You, you probably haven't heard of him, but you've definitely seen his ads yeah. <laughs> and been affected by those yes. ads. Don Schneider served as the executive creative director at BBDO New York, where he created iconic campaigns for branding. Brands like Pepsi, GE, HBO, and Visa. His work has won every industry award for creativity, including Cannes Lions. He's won an Emmy and a Clio, multiple Clios. In 2015, when USA Today ad meter listed the top 10 Super Bowl ads of all time, Six were created (laughs) by Don. He has also won a Grammy for Best Music Video. What does Tracy Morgan and 30 Rock call the EGAT? Like the the Emmy, the Golden Globe, or whatever. He's got them all. Emmy, Oscar, Tony, Grammy. He's a fascinating guy. And he was able to sit down with us for a little while and talk about, on a very practical level, because he he was able to talk to our listeners, who are mostly probably 70% running sub $5 million companies. We wanted to talk about how you make customers customers feel, even with a smaller marketing budget, branding is also important. And I think there's a time in a company's life, we've become a multi-million dollar brand in a few years. You know, we're just now beginning to transition, not from, because we will always be great at marketing, but we're transitioning into also branding. Yes. And that is our values as a company, delivering quality, delivering value. The customer is the hero. We're the guide. Excellence is the price of admission. Those kinds of values. How do we populate our marketing messages with also this kind of feel about who StoryBrand is. And it matters. It should be a common vocabulary around your office for you to say, you know what, that's off-brand. Yes. We don't wear those kinds of clothes because it's Mm off-brand. We don't say those kinds of messages because it's off-brand. But the only way you can know if something is off-brand is if you know what is on-brand. Yes. (laughs) And that's a process. That, That actually is some hard work. And so I wanted to interview Don to get us thinking about branding. This may be a year where you actually transition into, while also clarifying your message, into clarifying your brand and communicating that brand, making customers feel a certain way. This guy's a genius. <laughs> we could have gone a very long time. This is going to be an inspiring interview. Uh, yeah. we, it's rare to be able to sit and talk to somebody of this caliber who's accomplished this kind of thing. And like the last couple of podcasts, we actually have a worksheet that you can download at buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. Yep. And that will give you a tool to be able to follow along with this interview and be able to use for your own If branding. you want to rein this interview in and apply it to what you're doing, the worksheet is a great way to do yep. it. So I second you, JJ, buildingastorybrand.com slash worksheet. What an honor it was to talk to Don. Here is my interview with Don Schneider. Don, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Don. As I kind of researched you and looked into your stuff and watched some of your amazing commercials, I thought there's a composer to this guy. Well, and then dug a little deeper, found out you're a guitarist. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I am a musician, a weekend warrior. Yeah. So uh, I, I've done that. Doing advertising has let me play guitar on weekends. Are you really like in a band? Or? I've been in a lot of little bands, but I play. I have a music studio in my home, and you know, do the do the whole thing, and have different musicians come over, and it's it's really a whole lot of fun. It's kind of the best thing in the world. <laughs> yeah. And then and then you, I do this so that I can do that. Well, I know that you're in New York City, but you're spending a lot of time in Nashville, so That's it right. makes sense now that you, uh, That's uh, right. the, the guitarist in you is oh, being man. drawn to this town. Yeah, Nashville is, uh, there's a saying, if you want to come to Nashville to be a guitar player, stop 100 miles out, get gas, and if the guy pumping gas is better than you, turn around. <laughs> because I, I, I got to <laughs> be honest, be most I, have, people. I have never been more impressed with the musicianship no. that you see here in Nashville. This place is like yeah. on fire. 
everyone sings, everyone plays amazingly. And they're all very great. good. Do you think there's a connection between composing music and creating ads? Here, here's why I asked, because I actually went to college on a music scholarship for mm -hmm. a couple semesters and ended up playing more golf than going to class, yeah. so it didn't last long. <laughs> but I loved composing music because and it was classical music, but it was because it, you got to guide people's emotions. And then I found that same fulfillment writing books, and now I find that same fulfillment creating marketing campaigns for companies, but I would have never put those things together. Right. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think that doing anything creative, here's what it ha they all have in common. This may not be what you're asking. 90% of it stinks. <laughs> 90% or maybe 95% of what we all come up with is terrible. Yeah. And whether you're writing music or creating ad campaigns, whatever, and the people who seem to be successful get that early. And they're much more and, willing, and aren't afraid of the failure. Much more willing to throw it out. And I also think the cliche is the enemy of great creativity, whether it's right. music. How many times have you you hear a song and you hear the first four bars and you roll your eyes because you know where it's going? And this is something that's been published. Literally this afternoon, a new country song. Right. I could count the cliches. Right. And uh, we don't want to see that. Same thing, uh, drive up to a, a multiplex theater with 14 movies. You drive up, you want to see a movie, and you're looking at them, and you go, uh, same retread. Right. I've seen that before. I know that, I know that. And maybe there, out of the 14, there's two that are interesting. Well, that's the same with music, I think. I think it's the same with ad campaigns. Yeah. I think the people who have the courage to throw out and to, say, and to create and not love everything they create, but put it on the wall, change their mind, look at it again and go, you know what, that ain't very good. Right. We can do better than that. That's how I've done my career, and it, it's worked for me when, when you really, really, really push. So I imagine music is the same thing for when you're writing songs. I'm not trying to sell songs, but uh, um, I know that you have to be able to discard yeah, gener yeah, generously. The bad stuff. Right, right. Well, I want to get into specifically some of your campaigns in, in a minute and talk about why you went the direction you went and the effects yeah. of it. But before that, how did you get started? I know that you, you know, I'd read an ad weekly, I think, an interview where you talked about your dad. My mom actually worked at BBDO New yeah, York. Yeah, she worked at BBDO. And then... And he always, yeah, he always loved, he pointed to ads and he always, yes, yes. Yeah, I the way that. they framed it was, dad liked ads, I wanted dad to like me, so I started making ads. That's not true. <laughs> that, that, that is not true at all. But I didn't have those but, kind of But, you know, never get the truth in the way no, of a good story. My I'm dad sure always did when we were kids, he did point to ads and he said, you see that? That's bad. You should never do that. And he'd, little stuff, he'd say, you see what they said? They said highly competitive prices. You never put high with prices. Remember that, wow, you know. That's, that's, you know what I mean. Yeah. I was a kid, and I, I remember him saying that. And that wasn't his line of work. No, yeah, he was in. Uh, he was in kind of uh, journalism. He worked for Hearst Corporation. Oh, gotcha. He was like an international sales yeah, manager yeah, yeah. or something. Yeah, and then, but your mom was at BBDO. She was at BBDO just as a secretary, and, and uh, this was a, a long time ago. I'm, I mean, I'm dating her. It was in the late '40s, so she was there during the kind of like pre-Mad Men. Yeah. But yeah, it, it was uh, it was great, and I actually got my job because she there was an old timer who was still there, and he brought me in. I came out of school, and I was a uh, I actually started as a graphic designer. And this uh, is out of college. Yeah, I had I knew nothing about advertising. I didn't really want to know about advertising, but what happened was there was the Pepsi account, which was our big account, and they had this segment of it called Pepsi Promotion. So there was the cool big stuff being done, and then there was save bottle caps, get two tops, and trade them in. And get, get, I remember and those campaigns. Remember no one wanted like to that, touch yeah. it because it was so, they called it below the line. And uh, I raised my hand. I said, I'll do all of it. So as a young guy, after a year, I had made like 100 commercials Whereas my friends who were trying to do the good stuff were still trying to get one. Yeah. And what was interesting, the directors who do that kind of work are not very good. So you have to be better. You're actually doing it. I mean, these guys are not talented guys. They're you're doing actually it for directing pennies. the ad. Yeah, you're, you're, it's harder. Uh, when you shoot with Ridley Scott, you can relax a little bit. He's, he's not going to screw it up. When you're shooting with these guys, and I hope no one, none of them are listening right now, <laughs> no one, um, you have to be on it. And so sure, you kind of honed my skills and uh, did a little bit of a leapfrog and then eventually got into the stuff. And the first time I made like a cool commercial and, and it all came together with visual, sound, concept, a little thing went off. I went, this is what I want to do. So how many commercials were there before the little thing went off? In your I head. don't know. It was during that point, but I was doing I was doing one a week, and and you weren't convinced that this was the line of work you wanted to be. No, in. it was terrible. It was terrible. What's the difference? What's the difference between the one that that you went? Oh, I got to do this forever, and the ones before that. Well, one was 
better. It was it was it had a good idea, and you know what I mean. It, it was just a really smart. Is there a idea lesson about grinding time. it out? And I would say grind it. Yeah, I think the lesson is raise your hand, agree to do anything that gives you experience. You know, especially right now, the economy is supposedly growing right now. I'm, I don't know if that's true, mm -hmm. but after 2008, I told a lot of young people, including my kids, this that people were making big salaries were getting laid off, yeah. and what that meant for a young person was that you will get hired making nothing, but you'll be given responsibility so far beyond what you really have any right to have that you could call this school and go out there and get into this economy where they're, they're going to pay you nothing, but they've just fired a guy who knew what he was doing, and now they're going to let young people learn. And I said, school is just waiting for you. Yeah. And uh, I think that's true. I think hand raisers, people who just get into it, famous line, how do you learn to make a movie? Make a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's that. That applies to everything. And so you were in it from the beginning. You didn't back into this or accidentally discover it later in life. No, you, yeah, you, I, you've I, been in it from get go. Slowly got into it. Yeah, and uh, wor worked my way up and realized I loved it. Now storytelling, right? Yeah. Which I know what we're here to talk about. The business was different. Most. What, year, what, what years were this? Ah, uh, this is in 80s. the eighties. Uh, yeah. Yeah. People had realized, and advertisers had realized, and agencies had realized that they needed storytelling. So storytellers were brought in. It's not that storytellers loved advertising. I didn't love advertising as much. I love making beautiful stories and mm -hmm. telling them mm -hmm. beautifully with film. So there was a natural place for me and, and people like me to, to come in there. The shift now is that the worst word in the world that I've ever heard is content. <laughs> it commoditized creativity. Because think about it, like I know you're, you're an author, right? Mm -hmm. You've had a best-selling book at some point. That year that you wrote your book, there were probably 300,000 books written. Mm -hmm. Yours was a bestseller. Why? Because a publisher had created a great way to get it out there. And, and no, because of your compelling protagonist and antagonist and the way you framed the story and crafted it and all your art came together and it meant something to people. It's backwards to call that content, I don't want to say it's an insult, it is, but it's also backwards and it's dangerously backwards, I believe, because the driver of everything for brands that gets into people's minds and hearts and souls, the creative is the carrier signal for that. Yeah. And it's not just information. There's a creative, wonderful carrier signal. Yeah, how do you then marry, because your ads have that flavor to them. They have the flavor of, this could work outside of that this is being sponsored by a brand, right? right? So, you know, you're, th you're coming up with an idea. One of your ads has uh, a young boy on the streets of New York City, and there's a Coke machine on one side of the street and a Pepsi machine yeah. on the other side of the street. Right, right, right. He happens to choose the Pepsi machine, and it's right by a guitar shop. He picks up guitar. This is Jimi Hendrix. Where, as he looks across the street, the Coke machine is by the accordion shop. Right. The future could have been lost to Jimi Hendrix. Right. You have to marry that concept, that narrative concept, with selling Pepsi products. So do you have to stop the creative process or rein it in or guide it or force it into something that um, was the, no. the Pepsi? And, or how does that work? Um, and in fact, if you find yourself, my rule is if you find yourself forcing or shoehorning in, you've approached it wrong. Hmm. What it is is that Pepsi and Coke are products that we're always against that was our, our <laughs> enemy yeah. you know the the pepsi challenge it turns out that like 51 percent of the people chose pepsi in a blind <laughs> test because it turns out they had more sugar and people like sweet stuff yeah. so the whole pepsi challenge was one percent or a half of a percent the reality is that when you're in a in a convenience store and you see those two labels it's an emotional right choice it has nothing to do with the product with the actual taste we think it does, but it's an emotional thing. So if I create that spot where we say Jimi Hendrix wouldn't have been Jimi Hendrix without Pepsi, total bull, we're making it up. <laughs> but people who saw that in, inside say, I like those guys who told that story. Mm. And they don't even know why. And it, it's not instant ROI. This is a long term. Mm -hmm. um, but if you continue telling those stories in a way where they go, I like those guys telling that story. Yeah. What, what it is is when they're at the cooler there, they actually feel an affinity for the brand. Hmm. And they don't know why, but they're reaching for it. And that's what we tried to do. We did very little hard sell. We wanted people out there to feel like we get their sense of humor. Hmm. Because when you tell someone, I get your sense of humor, you're saying, I get you. 
And if I'm a, a consumer and you're a brand and you get me, I like you. Right. There's a trust there. Yeah. We yeah. talk about at StoryBrand the external, internal, and philosophical problems that people right. face. And it's really just our way of saying what you just said, that these are human beings, that they're actually not completely motivated to solve whatever problem it is that you help them solve. They want to solve a frustration or an identity crisis right. or something else that your brand can participate in. Sure, sure. I use this example sometimes when I teach, but there's a brand called Gerber Knives out of Portland, Oregon. They sell pocket knives for a lot more than the average pocket knife. And their ad is beautiful, beautiful commercial of cowboys, you know, cutting their bloody pant legs off and guys cutting rope from a right. propeller under a boat. <laughs> and the narration says, uh, hello, trouble. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> you've been looking for me or something like that right so uh, they you know, name trouble. exactly it's like mayhem it's like yeah, yeah exactly mayhem, right? but there is Smart. an aspirational identity that they are promoting in this ad that's beyond the knife i actually ended up with one of these knives i'm a writer i have yeah. no use for a pocket knife i used yeah. it to, <laughs> once to cut a bag of grass seed right. uh, and that's it yeah. and i ask people all the time if i paid 50 bucks for that knife and only used it once to cut a bag of grass seed open did i get ripped off mm -hmm. and the universal response is always no Absolutely. But people have trouble actually identifying where I got value. The reason I'm asking this question in such a long-winded way, Don, is you're the one who actually creates that value. You create more than the value of a can of Pepsi. You right. create something else. And do you ever sit and think about what is the aspirational identity or what is the feeling I want people to have? Because for their $1.50 for a can of Pepsi or a dollar for a can of Pepsi, they're getting the Pepsi and they're getting whatever it is that you're creating at the agency. Right. Um, the answer is no. We did you not, don't think about We that. did not approach it like that. It's kind of like when people analyze Bob Dylan's lyrics hmm. and they tell him what he meant and Dylan goes, really? <laughs> I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> what we do is we have a 30,000 foot this is what we did back then. And we felt it in our gut. And did it feel right? And it, it comes from a ton of experience and knowing, uh, it's, it's hard to explain. You said something interesting where you can't really describe what it is that you like about this ad. Right. Well, we purposely did that. When you could tell, we called it seeing the strings. You're not supposed to see the strings. Especially in America, people are so tired of being marketed to, mm. and they're so sensitive to it, that if you see the strings like, hey, we know you want this, so therefore we're gonna give you a little bit of this, and now you like us, right? Well, we, we found that people are doing, I call it the Heisman Trophy, <laughs> they yeah, put yeah, their yeah, hand up, yeah. they move away, because we've been marketed now for 50 years, and they don't wanna be marketed to. Mm -hmm. So we disguise the pull. So we do more of the feeling, just the, these guys are the kind of company I want to be um, associated Is there with. anything a, a sub $5 million company can do to create that kind of identity, to live in that kind of identity, to offer a feeling I'm, to a customer? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. And uh, you know, all the examples I'm using, there are big budgets involved. So yeah, exactly. It's, 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 it's and they have the question. luxury of not saying, go down to your local whatever and right. pay $299. I mean, I mean, if I, I would guess my 30,000 foot answer would be this to come up with, which is exactly what you do, come up with that North Star, what, what we stand for. Yeah. And make sure that every aspect of who we are is loyal to that and is informed by that. And then that synergy, I think it starts to have some, some value as everything works together. Like, and, and this is bad because I'm gonna use Apple as an example. Mm -hmm. And it's funny how we all use Apple as an example for, Hard every, not to. for everything. Hard not to. But think about them. A lot of people talk about what their big overall thought is and how they're thinking different and creating products that for a world where you want to think different. But the reality is most people don't see messaging from Apple. What people see is their friend talks them into buying an iPhone mm -hmm. and they get the box and they get it home. They hold it in their hand, they feel the weight of the box and it's just something better about it. It's a little, and then they unpeel it and they look at the paper that it's been packed in, and it's a beautiful, very smooth tooth coat with incredible, impeccable printing on it. And they lift it up, and the suction, and we all know this, right? Yeah. The suction <laughs> on that box is so beautifully fit. At this point, the story that's being told, and they're telling a story. Yeah. Well, it's a question who would go to this trouble to make something so impeccably and wonderfully beautiful? You haven't even gotten to the phone yet. Right. You're you're still digging on the suction of the of the box and the vacuum, and then you open it up, and there it is, sitting there beautifully in this perfect form fit plastic thing that fits exactly there, and the headphones are tucked in. So they understood, and Steve Jobs understood that 
every aspect to the tiniest atom had to be loyal to this overall idea of just excellence. And I think that for, a, uh, this is a long way to go, but for a 5 million and under brand to try to get a North Star and make sure that every bit of messaging ladders up to who they are. I mean, the bar's pretty high for Apple and it's hard for these guys to do that. But when you do that, you do start to get some play with everything and people go, oh yeah, I get those guys and I, I know who they are. So I, I don't it know if that even, answers your it question. It even goes all the way back. Jobs probably discovered that whole packaging thing when he went to Japan early on. Is that what they say? Yeah? That's what they say. Yeah. But I think it was the artist side of him that was mm -hmm. drawn to it, right? I mean, even yeah. opening up the package for the iPhone was, was an expression of a composer going all the way back to right. wanting you to have a series of experiences. And taste. And yeah. He was, he was just oozing taste. Yeah. I, I heard a story. This may or may not be true. And a lot of, there's a lot of folklore about him. But the story I heard was that about a month before the first iPod was released, the engineers very nervously you know, were in his office and they gave him the, the last prototype right before they went. And he looked at it, turned it over, put it back on the table and with one finger slid it back and said, an egg doesn't have screws. Because there were four <laughs> tiny screws in the back of each corner. And they, you know, the guys looked at each other, oh my God, they went back and they, they made it self-contained. But you can't teach Right. That he understood what this needed to be. It needed to be an egg. It needed to be almost organic. And um, that's the beauty of Steve. You talked about the pushback that we get in the marketplace today when people don't like to be sold to and all that kind of stuff. What's the yeah. difference between, and you've hit on a lot of it, you may have already mm -hmm. answered this question. What's the difference between a brand that doesn't make people feel that way and a brand that does make people feel that way? How do we not be the brand that makes people want to push back and say, stop selling to me while also being sustainable as a company? I mean, that's the... A buddy of mine, he's, he's a uh, film producer and the, the head writer on his show has above his desk, when in doubt, entertain. Hmm. To entertain in all the hundred ways you can entertain, you can be funny, smart, make people laugh, cry, whatever. What you're doing is in any kind of messaging, you're asking for a little bit of time. Hmm. Could be five seconds. Like I know you have your five second grunt test on a website. Mm -hmm. You're asking someone for five seconds and if you lose them, you lose right, them. Right, right. But even in a, a 30 second commercial, a 90 second commercial, a podcast, mm -hmm. you're asking people for their time. And the most wonderful thing you can do is reward them for that hmm. by giving them something. You gotta give. Even surprising them. Surprise them, give them something, make them smile, make them like something about you. But the last thing you do is, you say this all the time, show them pictures of your kids. Right. <laughs> <laughs> because no one wants to see it. Yeah. So I think that in, in all the, the, the myriad of ways you can entertain, remember that we tattoo that inside of our eyelids. We're asking for people's time give them something and they will respond. In my lifetime, we have seen the kind of a leaning toward the vilification in the public discourse of corporations, of wealthy individuals, those kinds of things. I mean, as an artist who has done his art and also contributed to making companies bigger, you know, that's one of the reasons they hire you. What do you sense when you hear this rhetoric? Well, I mean, I can use an example. I, you know, I worked on GE for quite a few years. Mm -hmm. uh, we had created um, Imagination at Work, mm -hmm. which moved them yeah. from a refrigerator light bulb company in, in the zeitgeist of the way people right. thought about right. them to an innovation company, which they were, but no one thought of it that way. Right. And at some point, after two years in, they came to us and at, at BBDO and they said, we want to show the world that we are environmentally conscious with the products and the services that we make. Hmm. And I was, I said to myself, how are we going to do this? And um, we worked on it. And I have a very good friend of mine who's a, a genius strategist. And he's, he stuck his head in my office. And I, I gave him the brief. And about a half hour later, he calls me up in my office. says, I got it. I solved it. What is it? And he says... What is the core of every environmental concern? And he always talks in this, this Socratic way. He always yeah, asks yeah. questions. And I go, what? He goes, dwindling finite resources, whether it's air, water. Scarcity. Scarcity, um, fuel, whatever. That's what environmental concerns are about. So he goes on, what's the one resource where there's just as much tomorrow morning as there was today? What? Imagination. What's the one thing that's going to save our butts? Technological ideas. And we've already put a stake in the ground with imagination at work. So what if we claim that we have a new kind of imagination? We have this incredible core competency to 
make ideas come to fruition. We come up with ideas and we call these ideas and this ability to make them come true, eco-imagination. Yeah. We actually came up with the name later. He, he named it something else, which was terrible. That was it. So again, these guys had jet engines that exceeded the governmental restrictions. I mean, they're great, like, like half the emissions that you were actually allowed to do. They were in wind power, solar power, all these really good things. Yeah, they moved in a good direction. So what we did is we told truths about who they were, and we focused on these wonderful industries that they were in, and it really turned out to be a huge uh, initiative for them. In doing that kind of work, you're not only shaping the public consciousness of a company like GE, but you're actually shaping the future of GE. Did you see it that way? Yeah, absolutely. You were helping them move in a great direction. Yeah, you have to because, again, we're talking to, when we create the messaging, we're talking to Wall Street. Yeah. Big time. Wall Street needs to know that a company like GE and all, all big industrial companies, they need, Wall Street needs to know that they're on the leading edge of where companies are going. Yeah. And that and environmental concerns, that's the uh, promised land there. So... Let me ask you to do something interesting. This will be a little bit of a curveball, but today is Super Tuesday. No, not Super Tuesday. Today yeah, is the day we the elect day, yeah. the president. Yeah, Super right. Tuesday is way back. Sure. We don't know who's going to be president. We'll right. know probably midnight tonight. Right. People will be listening to this two months from mm -hmm. now. But okay. as we speak, America is in not only an identity crisis, but we're in a funk in terms of the way we see ourselves. Right. And if America hired you, to do a campaign, oh boy. finding out, <laughs> helping us uh, believe in ourselves and moving us in the right direction. I mean, where would you start? Yeah, well, that's a well, there's a question. There's a question. I told you it was a curveball. So uh, yeah, so just solve this dichotomy of who we are as a nation. That's a that's a tough one. Obviously, that's why you're asking it. Yeah. Um, I, I think what I would do. I mean, again, thirty thousand feet. I'd look for universal truth. The reality is that when you have two sides throwing rocks at each other, the reality is when you really dig, they agree on more than they disagree on. Mm -hmm. Like if you take two sides that can't stand each other and you got mm. Hillary's side and Trump's side and they hate each other and all, if you really made a list, everyone agrees that you love your kids. Right. Everyone agrees you'd like to have a clean glass of water now and then. Everyone agrees it would be more fun to like have a barbecue and listen to some music than to be angry. Mm -hmm. So and down the list, that most of us really do agree on what we want out of life. And I think that we, we make the mistake of identifying with a very, very small part of life in order to throw rocks at each other. Mm. So I guess there, if there was some magical way to create messaging, and, and, and you know what it is? It's the universal, if aliens attacked, we'd all be friends again, and yeah. we'd fight them. <laughs> you need that kind of outside influence yeah. to wake us up and remind us that... A common enemy. A common, and, and I don't like doing that because that some really bad stuff has yeah, yeah, happened. fabricate when, enemies. That yeah, I mean, we see, yeah. we see that happening. The aliens is not a good one, but as far as conceptually, seeing our commonalities as opposed to what makes us different. The good news is there's much more that we really do care about. Do you think there's a, as I, I listen to you say that, and of course I completely agree, and wish somebody would fund a campaign like yeah, that yeah. and come to you and do it, there's no financial benefit to any no. sort of media outlet for actually going that route, is there? No, in fact, the opposite. Yeah. Do you uh, think that's part of our problem? Yeah, I do. I, I, I really do. I think that we, we've gotten ourselves in a, uh, ever since we got 24-hour news, mm. we need controversy. Yeah. And um, Hooked on it. We're hooked on it, and it's not. I don't know if it's good for our souls. I think it may be bad for us. Also, I know that the internet has allowed people to go off and seek out what they already believe, and kind of create even more of a foundation for that belief. Yeah, because you can find anything you want to find. You know, you can make a case that when Walter Cronkite was doing the news, he was more beholden to the truth because he was talking to everybody. And he had to represent the way people thought. Now the news is so partisan. Mm -hmm. I can't find on one type of news, like if you're looking at the Fox News or CNN, you can't ever hear anyone agree on anything. No. And that's wrong. And, mm -hmm. I, and I know that also, and you know, before my time, but I heard that you know, in, the, in the 50s and even 60s, Democrats and Republicans golfed together, their wives hung out, they were friends, and they would yell at each other in Congress but they were friends and they respect each other as human beings and now we've moved so far apart. Yeah. Um, you can't, I, I heard you can't get caught dead talking to the other side or it looks like you're in collusion. Yeah. So it looks like it's getting worse. Could something make it better? Maybe, there's always a bounce at the bottom. The struggle is to find the financial incentive for some powerhouse media company to actually participate in yeah. making it better. And that, 
but who knows that may exist that, yeah that would be a really yeah, it would be place. nice let me ask you this uh you and i talked about having both attended a robert mckee that's right that's <laughs> workshop right. who is a brilliant brilliant man yeah. what has been the influence of thinkers like robert mckee and joseph campbell and story has been a massive influence on you and right. how do you bring those tools those plot structures into your work in advertising well the, the way my epiphany happened when and it was while i was reading campbell and while i was doing the mckee thing the epiphany was that it's not just that we love stories the epiphany was is that we are creating the stories every living second of our life like for mm -hmm. example mm -hmm. if i go for a walk in the woods and i come back and someone says how was it i go wow you're not gonna believe this I heard a crack behind me, a branch break. I turned around, there was a bear. Mm. And this thing started running at me and I was, I was frozen with fear until I realized it wasn't running at me. It, there was another bear and it was actually just playing with it and they ran off over. Well, that didn't happen. <laughs> that wasn't a story that happened in the woods. In the woods, lots of bears were running around and things. My subjective point of view created the story. It's the way we interpret the world right. every second of every day. And as branders... And as people who are you know, in charge of brands, that's an incredible responsibility because that means that every single thing we do is part of our story. Mm -hmm. So if you do the analogy of a party, the loud guy at the party is telling a story about himself. He's very always concerned is with himself when right. he's the center of attention. The eloquent speaker with a bunch of people around him, all the pretty girls around him, uh, he has his own thing. What people don't realize, the guy sitting in the corner not talking to anybody is telling a story. He's the quiet guy. Why is he quiet? It's even worse. The guy who doesn't come to the party told a story. Why wasn't he here? So as a brand, and this goes back to the and, Steve and, Jobs and, box, everything is part of your story. So you have to be so cognizant of that. And it's a little bit scary because you have to be in control of, of the messaging and the spirit of the internet is relinquishing control. Right. So it's challenging. The more I'm involved in this work, the longer I'm involved in this work, the more I understand, because obviously we spend a lot of time thinking about how a brand comes off, and I tell people, you have to be very careful, the words that you use. Right. And slowly, over a couple of years, realized, I need to be very careful about the words yeah. I use about myself. <laughs> exactly. That when I say yeah. things like, oh, you know, I really don't like this, this kind of work when I have to respond right. to emails. I've right. just put that out in the public, yeah. and now my character, according to everybody, doesn't like responding to emails, which is only true right. that, because I just had a donut. I don't and, want to respond to emails. And, and, not and that true sound normally. bite is now out there. That's exactly it. And yet, I don't want to be a mannered person. I don't want to premeditate every time I walk into a room. Right. That's hardly creative or authentic. Has this affected you personally, all this work um, in branding? Yeah, I think think so. I mean, you have to be really careful. I mean, again, if you type it, it's there forever. We know this right. now. We, from listening to the news, we know this now. So anything out there is there forever. So you have to be really careful. I think that this, is, this gets very abstract, but one of my heroes is um, proto-modern artist Marcel Duchamp. And he, he had a famous piece, turn-of-the-century guy. He had a very famous snow shovel that was his art. I don't know if you know this story, but it's mm. fantastic. What he said was, he was a guy, he did weird things like he'd make a toilet and whatever, and that yeah, was yeah. in the Museum of Modern Art. He announced one day that one year from today, whatever he looks up and sees is going to be his next piece of art. Mm. So the art world went crazy writing about it. How can that be? And they're discussing what art was and are you allowed to even do that? And, and so for a year, there was a, there was a whole tumultuous argument about whether he could do that. A year goes by and he says, he's in Manhattan, he goes, yep, I found it. I was walking by a hardware store and exactly a year I looked up and in the window was a snow shovel and this is my art. They put it in the Museum of Modern Art. Hmm. It's still there. Hmm. And again, the art world went crazy. How, this is ridiculous. How can that be art? You know, and huge discussions it turned out that when he died he left in his will a little film he actually had made the shovel he turned it on a lathe he had formed the, so what it was was so the whole piece of art was just sort of he was always a step stimulating the conversation he, it's a great it's a great lesson it's what's said what how does. to do social media you stay ahead and you're throwing bits of meat out and let the world go and run and you throw another one over there and you let them run. Now you have to be really smart and really talented and you have to understand people. But he's a great example for, I believe, how social media 
should work. One way is to sit there and be like an airline and hope you don't wreck someone's baggage and they, they make a song about you, about how you ruin baggage, yeah. and try to quickly do damage control. The other way is to be out front and to be doing beautiful things it's like Red Bull. You don't hear from the next thing you know, they're, they're sponsoring a guy who's going to jump from outer space <laughs> right. without a power or whatever right. he did. It was ridiculous. And then over here, and just when you're excited about that, you're doing something there. I think that social media, for example, can learn from that kind of, um, hmm. it's not relinquishing control and hoping nothing bad happens. It's being incredibly proactive with what you do with your messaging and just stay ahead of the game. And it yeah. takes a lot of attention, I believe, and a lot of talent and a lot of resources to do that. Yeah. Don, thank you so much for taking time. I hope this is useful. Grateful. Hope you come back. This is the segment of the podcast called How They Do It. And JJ, this week you spoke with Rachel Brill. She's with Mitsubishi Caterpillar Forklift America Incorporated. Yes. MCFA. <laughs> Say that five times yeah, fast. That's yeah, that's a clarification of message <laughs> might be needed there. Yeah, well, that's why they go by MCFA, and you can find them at mcfa.com. They came to our live workshop. Yeah. I yeah. remember because they told us what they did, and it made me want to go visit them and drive their equipment around. I said the same <laughs> thing. Like a, I said the same thing when I was talking like to her. like a blast. I know. I asked you if we could race. She said legal might have a problem. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so. So they sell caterpillars and forklifts and they sell multiple products. And a lot of what they do is very, very technical and specific. They were used to giving off a ton of information of this is uh, what we can offer and these are the specs. And these are, they just kind of went on and on about everything about themselves. Yeah. And they came to StoryBrand and changed everything to make themselves the guide to their customer's hero. And it's already changing things. In fact, they made a video. They brought in, I believe it was their distributors. They gathered everybody kind of for this annual get-together. And normally, the video is kind of bragging about what MCFA does and how they help the distributors and the sellers. And they decided this year they were going to do it differently, kind of in the story brand framework. They use that story brand one page? Yeah. To, no, that's Basically great. change things to be able to make themselves the so guide. So they make the distributor the hero. Yep. And then they're the guide. And Rachel told me that after they showed that intro video that people got emotional. They actually came up to her and were emotional. <laughs> about forklifts. About forklifts, yeah. Oh, and so I am not alone in the world. I know. <laughs> I know. So it was really great. We loved having them at the live workshop here in Nashville. She actually came with her mom and then somebody else from their team. So they brought three people to our workshop. Very cool. Loved having them there. And this was a fun interview. So this is my interview with Rachel Brill from MCFA. Hello? Hey, Rachel, it's JJ from StoryBrand. Hi, JJ, how are you? Good, how are you doing? I'm excellent, thank you. So, Rachel, tell our listeners a little bit about what you do. Well, we're the one of the largest forklift companies in the world, and we're based here in Houston, Texas. Nice. And we manufacture three brands of forklifts. You know, I'm looking at your website right now as we're talking, and mm-hmm. I just have to ask, do you guys ever race the forklifts? You know what? Legal would probably. <laughs> we can't say. We'll talk after the phone call. You and I will no. talk after the phone call. Yeah. Get the real answer to that. Marketing um, would love that. <laughs> Marketing would love it. Legal would not. Uh, yeah, because that you know that'll be a story for sure. Yeah. <laughs> well, so you make these forklifts, and I'm sure it's a very complicated and technical kind of information that you're communicating. Mm-hmm. And so, what were you looking for to get help with when you came to StoryBrand? Well, when my manager and I went to the workshop, uh, my role had recently evolved at MCFA to continue with video production, but also take on digital marketing. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to develop more customer-facing digital stories, like with video. And um, with this new role, I was looking to have a better understanding of connecting with the customer's pain point uh-huh. and help deliver more relevant messages that connect and help convert buyers. Yeah. Um, And you're right, though. I mean, we sell three different brands, which is an added complication. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's not just one brand. And we have a huge range of products in there. So we really need to simplify. Yeah, (laughs) get it all down very tight. And what was the biggest thing that you learned when you came to StoryBrand? Well, you know, we were making ourselves a hero of the story. Mm -hmm. And 
we were talking about all the great things that our products can do. And we truly believe in our brands and we know that we can provide solutions to our customers. Yeah. But it's hard because you get excited. Yeah, yeah. You know you have you know you have the best product in the industry. You know you have exactly what the customer needs. Mm-hmm. So you just want to start listing all these reasons why you're awesome, you know. Yeah. Like we have the longest run times in the industry. We have a thousand hour service intervals. We yeah. have the fastest lifting speeds. We have the most experienced dealer network, but we were making ourselves a hero when we were doing that and yeah. we needed to make the end user the hero. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So what are some of the things that you did after StoryBrand that you changed from being the hero a little bit more? The first time I applied the framework after the workshop was for an, a video that we did. It was an introduction video that we used to kick off a new product introduction event that we were holding. Uh-huh. So we brought in all of our dealers and we hosted them here in Houston and we launched the new trucks that we've been working on the new forklifts that we've been working on yeah and when we were in the concepting stages for this video uh, we have some really strong amazing leadership here at mcfa Mm -hmm. and the president stopped me in the hall and he said you know i want to do something different than we've done before with these intro videos i don't want to just have a list of all of our accomplishments for the past year which Honestly, JJ, that's what we were doing before. When we had these intro videos, we would say, you know, oh, we've expanded by this much. We have all these sales tools that we've been using for you now. Um, So when he said that, that really got me thinking. And so what we ended up doing was shooting a video that addressed dealer pain points. So Uh the president would come on the screen and he would talk about the dealer's pain points. And then the executive vice president would come on the screen and give the medicine for that pain and show them how we could help fix it. Oh, love it. After that video played, you know, several people came up to me afterwards and told me that it made them emotional. <laughs> so <I laughs> so mean, you used you used forklifts and made people cry with the story brand framework. <laughs> I know. It's like, how cool is that? That it's is amazing. Machinery, but yeah. yeah, it was really cool. Which gets um, people excited to sell products more, which changes yeah. their, their business. Not, I mean, changes your business, but changes the dealer business. Mm-hmm. So it really can become a very emotional thing because you're talking about building a brand and building a business. I love that you yeah. made people emotional with forklifts. That uh, may be my favorite <laughs> thing I've heard. <laughs> yeah, it was so exciting. So, and that's something that StoryBrand really did help me put into focus was how do we transfer this excitement and this passion that we have because we're passionate at MCFA about it because we have a piece of ourselves in this product, whether you know, you're the welder here on site welding the truck or you're the marketer or you're the sales guy hitting the streets every day. There's a piece of us in there. Oh, yeah. So we already have it built in, but to be able to transfer that to our customers is a whole nother story. Oh, I love it. So great. Yeah. And you guys ended up winning the AMA Award for Marketer of the Year for Houston. We right? did. Congratulations yes. on that. Thank that you. is Thank unreal. You. Well done. Thank you. Well done. Thank you. You know, the reason we do these segments and interviews is one, to kind of hear from you, talk to some of our alum, which is always fun for me. But the other thing really is to help people who are listening to the podcast really give them some tips that they can do in their business in order to move Mm -hmm. forward. And so if you could give people one tip of how to move their marketing forward, what would that tip be? I think I would have to say, listen to your customers and discover what their pain points are. Mm -hmm. And I think it's easy to assume you know what customer pain points are and you know what they need. But really, you have to talk to them, talk to them, survey them, um, interview them. That's what we did here at MCFA. We, We did a lot of interviews. We did a lot of surveys. And then when you know their pain, you can deliver the medicine for their pain because you have an awesome product. You know your product's awesome. It is the medicine, but you need the pain first. Oh, that is such a good tip because I think a lot of people just assume what their customers are going through, but to actually take Mm -hmm. the time to ask them and then speak directly back to that 
in the story brand process, that's really where we talk through understanding people's pains, understanding the problems that they experience that get in the way of what they want. They're external, internal, and philosophical problems that get in the way. And when you can identify those, all your marketing needs to be able to speak directly to that. So that I think that's a fantastic tip. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. If you do decide, we'll talk more about this after the phone call, but if you do decide to do some forklifting races, could you please call me? Oh, you'll be the first. Thank you. Oh, you're my favorite. (laughs) (laughs) That's so good. Well, thank you so much. Congratulations again on the AMA award. Thank you so um, much. Good luck with all your marketing and making people cry over forklifts in the future. (laughs) Thank you, JJ. Thanks, Rachel. Bye-bye. Bye. JJ, terrific interview. I do see a future in which you and I play chicken on a forklift. Oh, 100%. Yeah. yeah. And if their legal doesn't know, then it doesn't happen. <laughs> well, we've got a great interview for you next week also. Rachel Cruz, daughter of Dave Ramsey, swings by, and she's going to tell us all sorts of great tips we can use to manage our money. If you've been around StoryBrand a long time, we have definitely helped you clarify your message. You have definitely engaged more customers, and you're rolling in cash. (laughs) So what do you do with that cash? Here's a little clip from next week's interview with Rachel Cruz. I had this experience when Winston and I were on vacation where I, I tried to forget about the budget. He was like, I'll take care of it. Don't worry. And I found myself spending money and feeling so out of control for the first time in a long time because we had mm. been on a budget consistently for a few huh. years. And the one time he was like, Rachel, just don't worry about the budget. And I was like, oh, freedom. I get to live in my strengths, right? I get to really right, not right, have to think right. about this. And I found myself completely like losing my mind because I was like, I have no clue where our money's going. And so I realized that a budget doesn't limit your freedom. A budget gives you freedom. Mm. It gives you permission to spend. It gives you permission to do the things that you value. And you can go buy a jacket this winter at the mall and pay for it. And, you, and you're not second guessing, like, oh, right. is that bad? Is that okay? Should we have done that? Or you go out to a nice dinner and it's like, oh, is that too expensive? I don't know. You know, yeah. when all you, that's when gone. When you pre-decided the budget, there's no guilt about totally. even yes. the, the fun stuff. The guilt and the shame. And talk about the no fighting couples, especially. It's amazing when you can agree on where your money's going. You're agreeing on not, not just money. I mean, it's your dreams, it's your goals, your fears, your values. Everything's lined yeah. up. And it's amazing the money fights and money problems really significantly go down in a marriage when you can just simply agree on, hey, this is what we're going to spend. Well, that wraps up another terrific episode of the Building a Story Brand podcast. Music from this episode is from Andrew Bell. You can listen to Andrew's music on Spotify or iTunes. Thanks, as always, for listening to the podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.